This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. So the topic of tonight's talk is training and not killing, and I've titled this talk How Conduct Bears Fruit. And I'd like to begin with a quote from the Middle-Length Discourses, Discourse number 46, from the Greater Discourse on the Way of Undertaking Things. Now this discourse begins with the Buddha is talking to an assembly, and he asks the assembly a question. And he says, For the most part, beings have this wish, desire, and longing. If only unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things would diminish, and wished for, desired, agreeable things would increase. Yet although beings have this desire, longing, and wish, unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things increase for them, and wished for, desired, agreeable things diminish. Now what do you think is the reason for that? It's a pretty good question. Hopefully it's a question we ask ourselves. What is the reason why we keep getting ourselves into trouble? (laughs) And what is the reason when things kind of go pretty nicely in our lives? How do conditions create effects? So the discourse goes on to answer the question, and the Buddha points out that people who are, quote, unskilled in the Dhamma, end quote, who do not know what things should be cultivated and what things should not be cultivated, what things should be followed and what things should not be followed. When they don't know this, they cultivate the things that should not be cultivated and they do not cultivate the things that should be cultivated. They follow the things that should not be followed and do not follow the things that should be followed. And because of this, Unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things increase, and wished for, desired, agreeable things diminish. This happens because people who are unskilled in the Dhamma, who are undisciplined in the Dhamma, do not know and do not see. So basically the Buddha is saying that people keep blowing it and doing the very things that are going to bring them unhappiness. And this happens when people do not see the way that conduct bears fruit. So in tonight's talk, I want to look at the first training precept for lay Buddhists, which is the commitment to refrain from killing. I'll be using this precept, restraint around killing, as a way of exploring kama and exploring how it is that action bears fruit. Buddhism offers a detailed analysis of mental states to explain why it is that some actions lead to pain and other actions lead to happiness, why it is that some states are considered wholesome and other states are unwholesome. For this talk, I've drawn a lot on the Buddhist psychology called Abhidhamma, where there's an Abhidhamma analysis that I think quite precisely explains the ethical components of our experiences, states, and choices. Now, sometimes when I speak a little bit about Abhidhamma, it can be a little taxing after a long day at work. 
Don't get stressed out over the various lists and categories, especially if they're new to you. Although the Abhidhamma is such a mainstay in Theravada Buddhist countries such as uh, Myanmar, where even school children would be quite familiar with it, I think in America we teach it much less frequently, especially in contemporary Vipassana groups. And so this lack of familiarity can sometimes create a bit of strain or agitation in the listening. Um, But I encourage you to relax a bit and just maybe bear with me a bit. See if you can open to some of these explanations and see what might be meaningful to you. In the Abhidhamma, they look at, in particular, 14 primary states that are unwholesome. And Within each unwholesome state, like a state of envy or a state of hatred or a state of conceit or a state of restlessness, within each of these unwholesome states, there are four universal factors that are present in every unwholesome state. These include delusion, shamelessness of wrongdoing, fearlessness of wrongdoing, and restlessness. And each unwholesome state is also characterized not only by these four universal unwholesome states, but by either the inclusion or exclusion of additional factors that characterize the state. So they might have greed, they might have wrong view, conceit, hatred, envy, possessiveness, worry, sloth, torpor, doubt. Whether the unwholesome state is rooted in greed, hate, or delusion, whether it's a state where we're, we find ourselves craving for candy or experiencing genocidal hatred or just restless distraction, we'll find to some degree that all these unwholesome states share those four universal unwholesome factors. Delusion, shamelessness of wrongdoing, fearlessness of wrongdoing, and restlessness. And there'll be a particular combination of other factors that will distinguish the character of that state. Now, these unwholesome states might arise naturally, might arise, well, naturally, might arise through the force of our own conditioning, or they might be prompted by others. They could literally be urged on by the words and the influence of other people. In these cases, when they're prompted, the unwholesome force is said to be affected by sloth and torpor because that state was sluggish and it was aroused only reluctantly. It was aroused only by the influence of other people. But the unwholesome states can also be unprompted, unaffected by sloth and torpor, and easily aroused whenever there's a strong inner motivation toward that action. The Abhidhamma analyzes wholesome states similarly, in a very similar way as they do unwholesome states. Each wholesome state will share a set of beautiful factors that are present in every wholesome state. Mindfulness, equanimity, lightness, faith, tranquility, non-greed, non-hatred. Wholesome states can also be prompted or unprompted. But in tonight's talk, I'm not going to give much attention to the wholesome states. I'm going to mostly focus on the unwholesome states or the wholesome state that is called a restraint 
of the unwholesome. But to explain a little bit more about some of these categories of Abhidhamma, it's helpful to understand that wholesome states can be associated with knowledge or disassociated with knowledge. There can be a presence or an absence of the understanding that actions have effects. Even with unwholesome states, there can be this presence or absence of understanding. There can be a difference between hurting someone with the full awareness that one is doing nothing wrong, or harming someone with the basic awareness that this is a harmful action. Our actions might be rare, or they might be repeated. There are some things that we do over and over again, reinforcing a strong pattern. But actually, there are many momentary events that occur rapidly together to create any kind of habit, any kind of pattern. Although one moment might ripen as the primary cause of kama, that one comically potent moment has to be supported and influenced by many other thoughts, many other actions, many other inclinations and factors. All the conditions that surround an action have importance, and they can influence the strength and intensity of the patterns that condition our actions in life. Last week, I introduced a practice where we reflected upon our virtues. We let the joy and the self-respect of our own good conduct nurture a delight in wholesome states. Basically, we remember our practice our good practices, our practices of restraint, our practices of sila, our practices of generosity. We recollect our virtues. And we think something like, this is from the Visuddhimagga, quote, Indeed, my various kinds of virtue are untorn, unrent, unblotched, unmodeled, liberating, praised by the wise, unadhered to, conducive to concentration. End quote. Did anyone have that thought this week? The practice is to recall a time when you did something good. In particular, when we're reflecting on sila, when we're reflecting on the precepts, we recall a time when we actually had an opportunity to break a precept, but we actively refrained from doing that. And then we can notice the self-respect and the joy that comes with, that is associated with the act of restraint. I found the reflection on virtue to be a powerful source of inspiration within my own practice. And you don't have to be a saint. You don't have to be perfect to do this practice. I'm sure everybody here can do it. Because we can work with very ordinary daily actions. Little decent things we do each day. For example, I can vividly recall a time not long ago when I opened a door. And just as I opened it, a spider crawled into the door frame, and it would be crushed as the door swung back closed. So I just paused for a minute, and I just held the door open until the spider crawled to safety. It's not a big deal, but it was an action. I had to put my arm out and hold the door for a few seconds to let the little spider crawl away. 
It was an action to not kill. And it felt good. We can take something as simple as that to then look at the quality of mind that refrained from killing. In that mind, there wasn't self-importance, there wasn't arrogance, there wasn't greed, there wasn't hatred. It was just a very quiet, simple state of mind that was free from mental dis-ease, that had enough patience to care about something else, someone else, just enough to hold that door opened. And I was happy to do it. The last time I was on a retreat, in Massachusetts, there's a, a road in the country that I like to walk on. And sometimes the snakes like to come out on the, that road and enjoy the sun and enjoy the weather. And cars don't come by very often. But they do. You know, it is a road. And so the snake had been out there long enough that it was, you know, like curled up and sunning itself. It didn't seem to be doing very much. But it was positioned in a way that was not a, you know, it was a very dangerous place to take a nap. And just as I was walking nearby, or just, just nearby the snake, a car was coming up behind me. And it was coming right in the lane. It, was, it would surely kill this snake. So all I did was just, it was a country road. They weren't going very fast. So it, I could step into the road relatively quite safely, so that the car would have to move into the other lane and go around the snake. Again, a very simple action, not a big deal, but it was just enough that when the car passed, the snake was aroused by that vibration and was able to, after the car passed, to scurry off the road to safety. It was just another very simple act of not killing or protecting life or not letting this being be killed through inaction. It may be that mosquitoes and flies and spiders and ants provide us with endless opportunities to practice the joy of not killing in our own homes. Some of you might have refrained from killing larger animals or even humans. I have a friend who has a lot of dogs, I don't even know how many dogs. It always seems like there's six or eight or ten dogs around her. Fortunately, she lives out in the countryside, so she has like enough space for dogs. And I asked her once why she had so many dogs. You know, why would anybody have more than one (laughs) or two? Well, it turned out that her husband um, was a veterinarian. And when people brought their dogs in to have them put down, for often very minor medical procedures or medical needed medical treatment that just needed more time and attention than the owner felt like doing. Then he would ask if he could treat them and just take care of them and bring them home. So he did. And they ended up with this whole pack of very happy dogs. mostly because the owners didn't have the time to put on an ointment or to give an injection or something of that nature. Many people who have served in the military or security occupations or other various situations may have at some time or another had to choose whether or not to kill, to kill a human being. And you might reflect then on that choice. Which choice did you make and why? 
If there were times when you could make the choice to not kill, that restraint would have a very strong positive. It would be a very strong positive action. And we can let the power, the memory of that not killing bring strength and power to our virtue because it's the power of restraint. It brings joy and supports both self-respect and concentration. When we have at some point or other in our lives practiced restraint, we will know that our actions are not controlled by impulse or habit. We'll have a great deal of influence over what we do and what we don't do. It's easy enough to think that keeping the precepts is kind of Pollyannish. But really, the situations that we face in life are complex, and even the precept of not killing can be difficult to keep quite strictly. A number of years ago, we had a rat infestation. Something had to be done. We ended up doing some research, trying to figure out what the options were, having a number of people come out and explain what services they offered, at what prices. There were various kinds of professional exterminators who offered advices and quotes, everything from poisons and killing traps and noise-making devices and live catch that they would take off to the, somebody else's yard, I would imagine. <laughs> And all at various prices. The compassionate approaches, of course, were about eight times more expensive than the killing kind. And they all had different advices, different suggestions. And it was very interesting, actually, to investigate the options and to try to make the best choice that we could and then accept the consequences of that decision. I learned a lot not only about the life cycle and habits of rats, and how to remove them, but I also was investigating my own mind and my own responses. And one of the things that was rather shocking to see was that there was actually hatred in my mind. I did not want them there. And when I crawled underneath the house and saw their living quarters close up, you know, the little nests that are clustered next to the heater, the mounds of snail shells that they had dined on at night, the greasy smears as their body, along the walls as their body marks their tracks, and the maze of holes and passageways that they had made in the walls going between the condominiums, and the stink of their poop. It was all quite repellent. I felt like my home had been invaded, and I wanted them gone. That's a feeling of hatred. There was a clear decision to get rid of them that was actually founded upon an aversive state. It was not wholesome. Now, I could justify it, of course, with feeling it was necessary. There were, of course, disease considerations. But the moment of decision actually came out of aversion. It came out of not wanting them there. It had an unwholesome root. But I also felt a lot of reluctance. I felt dread at the thought of killing them. I felt a wish to avoid the killing and therefore made this great effort to research various pest control options to see which involved the least 
damage to life. And I believe that although the decision to get rid of the rats (laughs) was an unwholesome state, this reluctance that circled around it was a manifestation of a very wholesome tendency to protect life. You'll probably find when you have to make difficult decisions sometimes that there are conflicting motivations. Even this decision to not kill, we can do very reluctantly if we find we have no alternative. And we can intentionally do it without enjoyment, without glee, not joyfully. Let's not do it easily. As much as possible, even when we have to do something like get rid of a pest, then we can do it by enhancing and supporting those competing wholesome forces, the, the reluctance to kill, the restraint around killing. So that even if we do feel that we have to take some fatal action, (laughs) we do it only reluctantly and only after searching for alternatives that would avoid the killing. There may be times that people choose to defend themselves, to defend their families, to defend their territory, to defend their home. But there may also be times when we decide not to kill. Imagine how much less killing there would be in the world if we just didn't kill in order to defend our personal pride, our personal wealth, our ideological views, our self-image, or our positions of power. People sometimes kill for even more trivial reasons when they don't take the time and the practice to reinforce the respect for life and to develop the capacity for restraint. We read about incidents all the time in the news where there's shooting sprees because somebody felt disrespected or got passed up for a promotion. When people kill out of just blind anger or out of depression, they kill in a kind of initiation ritual or kill for financial reward. I was reading a magazine article about a rather barbaric rite of manhood that's actually still practiced today in Northern Europe. And the article showed these pictures of beaches filled with rows of dead dolphins and crowds of arrogant young men standing with wet suits, kind of boasting their kills. It was a kind of a right of manhood to go into the waters when the dolphins at the time of year when they came into the bays and to kill them, to go in with spears and wrestle with them and kill them. Why didn't those men have restraint? Why didn't the families, the government, the communities say, this is a horrible, terrible thing to do? It's a senseless slaughter of life of dolphins, of beautiful life, something that I can't, I just can't imagine how a civilized culture would value that. Why didn't they, why don't they have the commitment or the courage to refrain from that? That goes on every year now. We're not talking about an ancient tribal time where people did various things and, you know, ate the food. This is, this is 
today. We shouldn't assume that killing is something that only evil people do and that because we meditate, we're beyond it. We have to look deeply at the roots of action and look to see if our actions are affected by hatred or greed and actively work with our virtue, our sila, our precepts. We can observe the mind and examine the roots from which our decisions and our actions spring and look to see if we are acting out of love or out of hate. We can notice the breaches of our precepts when aversion and carelessness and disregard for life get the better of us. We can examine the causes for those breaches. Why do we give in to an action that we know to be rooted in greed or in hate? Sometimes when we do, there's an internal commentary that starts to justify that killing, condone the killing, because we want to think of ourselves as being good people. I think we can at least stop the internal justification that condones killing and know that it's wrong. I think it's very important to make an explicit, clear commitment to not kill. It's not enough to just happen to not kill just because the occasion doesn't come up very often in our lives. But we can think about the implications of our action and nurture the power of active restraint and use the power of the vow to support mindfulness and restraint. When we make an explicit commitment to not kill, we're more likely to question any inclination of the mind that could lead toward killing. And we're more likely to refuse when other people expect us to kill, even a fly even an ant. People often wonder what stance Buddhism takes on mercy killing or compassionate killing. You might reflect on what your opinions are on these subjects. Do you have a view about assisted suicide, perhaps for patients with terminal illness? Do you have a view about abortion, Abortion if the fetus perhaps is severely disabled, or abortion perhaps if the fetus is unwanted. Do you have views about withholding life-sustaining medical intervention for patients that are in comas and not likely to ever regain their consciousness? Do you have views about putting down animals if they're in pain, or killing animals in scientific or medical research? Do you have views about eating meat, vegetarianism, raising animals for food, or hunting for food? In Buddhism, a person is not considered evil because they kill. Every single act of intentional killing, though, is considered unwholesome. The action of killing will always have an unwholesome comic result. Never a wholesome one. I should rephrase that. It's not the result doesn't necessarily come. It's an unwholesome comic potential. Killing is always rooted in either greed or hate, but it can be done with or without the knowledge that killing will bring unwholesome comic fruit. But killing 
is never associated with wisdom, panya, but it can be associated with either delusion or with non-delusion. The belief that there is no harm in killing or that killing will have no comic result indicates a strong delusion that might be reinforcing that unwholesome action. If the choice to kill is made reluctantly, though, and with the knowledge that there will be a price to pay, that actions have results, that painful consequences will come from the action, then there's a lot less delusion reinforcing the action. And it might be an act of killing that is very little delusion. Someone might commit suicide because they hate the feeling of pain or hate the thought of becoming a burden to the family. Someone might assist another's suicide because they hate seeing the person in pain. Someone might kill a beloved pet because they can't bear the pain of seeing them suffering slowly. A scientist greedy for fame might perform needlessly cruel experiments. Youths might kill dolphins with the greedy desire to be respected as a man. Or, and there may or there may not be hatred towards the dolphins themselves. The butcher probably doesn't hate the cow. The hunter probably doesn't hate the elk. But they might still be motivated by greed for the meat. A soldier might kill out of greed for the job or hate for the enemy. A terrorist might strap a bomb to their own bodies out of hatred or a greedy desire for a promised heavenly reward. When people kill, they may or may not hate the particular people they are killing. They may or may not be wanting a particular benefit. But the act of killing, the decision to kill, will always have be influenced by hatred or greed. In classical Abhidhamma terminology, unwholesome acts such as killing are classified as double-rooted. They have either greed or hatred present. But greed and hatred don't arise together. They'll also have the unwholesome, universal association with delusion. Although delusion can arise in various intensities, sometimes strong delusion, and sometimes it can be very, very weak. It's weak when we really understand that we're doing something very wrong. But for some reason or another, we feel that, the, that the, it would be worse to not do it. On the other side, there are wholesome rooted states, such as the commitment to not kill, the keeping the precept to refrain from taking life. Wholesome actions like restraint are always rooted in both non-greed and not hate. These two factors arise together in wholesome states. Non-greed is anything associated with generosity, offerings, renunciation. Non-hate might have to do with goodwill, friendliness, compassion, sympathetic joy, appreciation. Wisdom or knowledge, in addition, is an occasional factor that may or may not accompany these wholesome states. Here, the absence of knowledge, though, does not 
imply delusion. Delusion is never present in a wholesome state. Therefore, wholesome states are classified as either double or triple-rooted. Double-rooted means that they just have the roots of non-greed and non-hate. Triple-rooted means that they not only have the the roots of non-greed and non-hate, but they also are rooted in knowledge and wisdom. This means that one can also do a good action for many different reasons. And many mental processes circle around the performance of a single action. For instance, developing the purity of a concentrated mind, of developing meditation, is a very wholesome action. This is most powerful when it's done with knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge that the concentrated mind is a cause for liberating insight. But we can concentrate our mind with less wisdom, actually. It can be done simply out of the conceit to be seen as a really good meditator or the desire to succeed in our practice or out of a craving for the pleasures we've heard are associated with concentration or out of greed for just being more effective in our work. I sit up in front of you. A mosquito buzzes by. I might protect the life of that mosquito for various reasons. That refraining from killing could be performed with mixed motives. The restraint could be out of a desire to not disturb the quiet of the meditation hall, to not be seen killing. Right? I mean, it wouldn't impress you very much if I sat up here swatting away the insects while I was giving a Dharma talk, would it? So although the primary action of refraining from squashing it might be accomplished, I still could be nurturing hatred toward the insect. The act of restraint is still non-greed and non-hate rooted. The act of restraint is still a a wholesome action. But since there are many countless consciousness moments that occur in rapid sequence in the course of every action, kama is not so clear-cut. It's not so simple. But if I refrained from killing the insects because I understood and valued the life of the insect, and that I understood that killing has unwholesome comic consequences, then knowledge would be arising that accompanies the restraint. And that will make the action of restraint all the more potent and be a very positive comic influence on the patterns of mind. It may sound spiritually greedy to do actions because we want comic rewards, But the meaning is deeper. By understanding the workings of kama in action and recognizing what patterns we strengthen or weaken, we can intentionally increase the benefits of wholesome actions. We can make a wholesome action most positive, most fruitful, by associating it with wisdom, the wisdom that understands suffering and the causes of suffering, a wisdom that is informed by right view. Reflection reinforces our wholesome deeds with a conscious recognition of what causes suffering and what ends suffering. This may take an explicit form of linking 
our good actions, our wholesome kama, with the aspiration for awakening or with the intention to practice mindfulness and restraint. We can purify our actions by mindful examination, diligent practice, and noble aspiration. We can have the thought, may I refrain from killing for the benefit of all beings. May the power of this restraint bring peace, inner peace, and outer peace. We can take great joy in the moments when we actually do demonstrate our own capacity for, for wise restraint. I'm really happy to have the opportunity to devote a full talk to a very basic precept, to not kill. And I'm also very happy that you came here tonight to reflect on the subject together. People rarely take the time to contemplate the practices that seem so obvious. But the precept of not killing can be a source of tremendous joy in our lives, provides strength in our mindfulness practice. When we understand the power of restraint and examine how our actions bear fruit, we will be able to negotiate so many decisions that we have to make, so many choices wisely. Powerful, wholesome comic forces that develop with precept practice will be a resource for happiness throughout our lives and perhaps future lives as well.